Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall. I'm the Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and my guest today is one of our favorite cinematographers, Greg Frazier. Uh, he's got uh, the new Denny Dune coming up, and uh, he's working with Matt Reeves again on the new Batman. Uh, but today we are talking about Mandalorian, but even more specifically, we're talking about ILM Stagecraft, uh, these live LED sets. Uh, Greg has been pioneering this technology and working with uh, ILM for a few years on this technology. He took a producing credit on the show, Mandalorian, which is really the first large-scale implementation of this technology. And honestly, this is the future uh, you know, for a, a certain type of movie. Uh, it vastly improves on green screen. And that future, and Greg and I will discuss this, is something that's being accelerated with the outbreak of coronavirus. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. The drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning. It's told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. It's starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Google Matara, Billy Crudup, and a very funny Mark Duplass. It's for your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including outstanding drama series. And I, I know they just listed off this wonderful cast, but you know that wonderful cast was put together by uh, casting director Victoria Thomas. And I'd be remiss on the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast if I didn't mention, uh, you know, there's a lot of our favorite artisans working on this show. Carter Burwell is one of the best composers going. Anyways, uh, it's visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Greg, I want to start with, um, in talking about Mandalorian, let's start just orientating the listeners, um, kind of big picture. We'll get into, um, you know, the specifics here. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to get into specifics, but I just want people to kind of visualize how, how this was shot and this kind of groundbreaking technology. I'm calling it ILM's virtual sets. I don't know if you guys have a different term for it, but, you know, this is a Star Wars project. You did not go necessarily to the deserts and exotic locations, and these aren't always green screen backdrops. You're shooting against, as far as I can understand from my reading, a kind of enormous LED screen um, that almost is serving like a live set for some, for some of these locations. Is that? I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, just kind of draw the picture for for the listeners. It's a, it's a, it's tricky to explain. It's much easier when you do see images. So obviously, if people can uh, Google search images, it will help uh, their understanding of, you know, after, especially after what I've ex- described. But effectively, we've we've built a, a a volume of LEDs. So you walk in the front door, and it's a circle, seventy-five foot wide in diameter, and twenty foot high, and then there's a ceiling of LEDs and wall of LEDs. So you effectively walked into a space that we create the backgrounds for. So in, in 3D, in, 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 uh, in Unreal or, or the, the ILM uh, 3D gaming engine, we create what the backgrounds are. So, you know, on one day you can go from, uh, you know, interior Werner Herzog office to sunset, uh, you know, Mando looking over a, a, a city with a with a with a weapon to the desert. It, you know, provided the art department is able to move the props around, because effectively that's all they are. It's like a stage show at that point. You know, you bring in a table and a chair and a couple of crates, and suddenly you're in Werner Herzog's office. You bring in a ledge and you're on a rooftop looking over, and you bring in some sand. It's the it's the perfect uh, scenario for productive film production because 
your backgrounds dictate where you are and if you can design the backgrounds well and the spaces well enough your changeovers can take a very short amount of time so from the, the perspective of efficient storytelling it's a bit of a holy grail and you know one of the great things about this was that like one of the things i love about filmmaking is um is is working with an actor putting a camera on an actor and having them see having see performance and 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 cover them one of the things i hate most about production is waiting for that moment and it seems like is that 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 phrase in filmmaking it's hurry up and wait and there is unfortunately so much that goes into those three examples that I just gave you. You know, we're an interior office. That means we're on a set. That means we've pre-lit the set. Then we have to do a stage move and we're on a on a outside overlooking a, a city. So we have to build that set or we go green screen. There's just so much involved in the changeover. So what this is, is a holy grail of film for filmmakers, if they use it correctly, to get really good results. Now, when I say using it correctly, it's the same argument you could say about green screen you know when that first came out there were filmmakers saying hey we never have to go to the desert again we can put some dirt we can put a put a palm tree and suddenly we're in the desert provided we've got a blue screen i mean the reality is those results were not good and so what this does it sort of ups the level of the quality that is able to be achieved in a controlled studio environment you mentioned, and in, in you're a cinematographer, people know your work, you're a cinematographer who does very much interact and your camera very much interacts with the actor. So it's not, it's not simply just what you're filming, but there is, there is, so there, there is a performance aspect to it. Um, but, you know, I, I have to imagine that, and I don't want to get into one thing being one technology or one tool being better than the other, but just to kind of pull out from a cinematographer's standpoint, some of the limitations of green screen one of which is just that composition, right? Is that is that framing up and in that sense of the relationship of foreground, background, you know, character and space. In a lot of cases, you're you're not you don't have all the elements when you go to to, to frame up a shot in in a, in a green screen, blue screen environment, right? Exactly right. You know the the difference between a good shot and a great shot can be an inch to the left. You know, and the difference between a, a base level shot and a good shot can be two inches to the right. And so as cinematographers and as as image makers, and it's not just me, it's also directors that can see too, you know, we, we can judge things. We, we, we would deliberately not put a light pole behind someone's head in fear that that's popping out of their head. Like, but... But maybe there's a there's an opportunity to put something else behind their head to silhouette that shape against a a, 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 a lighter wall, which then helps you give more depth. Now, you you can design that later, you can help that later, and there are some great visual effects artists that can do that. But for the most part, that's a different set of eyes. When you've got the blue screen, you've got a different set of eyes. Eight months down the track, designing what you should have been designing on the stage with your actor. You know, you've got the opportunity, if your actor moves a little bit to his right, then you, if, you, if you're handheld, you might move a little bit to your right to maintain that, that shape. But when you're doing it in post, the, the, the visual effects artist may not do that. So I guess 
you know, and that's not undermining the the talent of some of the visual effects artists because, uh, I mean, listen, I've met some visual effects artists that I've been blown away by their skill, but they're not me. And without wanting to sound like a control freak, and I'm going to sound like a control freak, I want full control over my framing. Mm. So that's 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 one aspect of it. Another aspect which is really pretty well overlooked, I feel, is the lighting. Yes, yes. Because, yeah. you know, we... we as DPs, we, we have a, a set of tools in our arsenal to to recreate Mother Nature, to recreate the sun, to recreate um, window light, to recreate these things. And all of these things are false. We don't have the sun. We don't have, you know, um, real skylight from, you know, the, the, the northern sky uh, that can come in and wrap around. So we, we, we have to create those things. And very often we don't have the resources. Like if you go and sit by a window, uh, you'll, you'll, you're lit by a, a massive light source outside that window. It's not just a 20 by 20 or a 12 by 12. It's massive. And so I feel my theory, and this was really well proven by the Mandalorian because the Mandalorian was a bit of a, um, a bit of a test case. He was a chrome uh, a chrome figure. He's a, he's got a chrome helmet, and on a film set, chrome figures and chrome helmets are the worst thing you could possibly have because they reflect every C stand, every arm, every boom mic. Like they reflect everything, and so throughout history, only really an idiot would choose <laughs> a chrome outfit for a character. Yeah. We. The idiots we are, we have the opportunity to to be able to do that. We have the opportunity to because we don't need to have all of those accoutrements to light our man. And the benefit also is that the viewer, I think, looks at the Mandalorian's outfit that they don't notice reflections, as in like you don't go, oh, that's a reflection of the what's behind the camera, so therefore I believe it. But subconsciously, they are absolutely making those those calls you know and also and also the other thing about the blue the green screen even moving away from from a chrome head is if it's a mountain backdrop if it's if if, if it's a, a curtained window whatever it is presumably in in that uh that environment there's light coming from that there's some light aspect of that that's effect that when you see the image put together, it should be influencing in some way, probably what's what you actually are filming with the characters. And you yep. can't until you can see right what what that is. It's like, it's, yes, you can fake the sun, but you need to see what kind of day it is out there and and yep. and where the sun is. Right. If you're going to kind of fake that with a. Uh, with lights and, and 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 so part of this also becomes these LEDs, right? They emit light, right? They're, they 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 yes. they become not only the backdrop, but they they also are, are some to some degree a, a light source, right? They they are one hundred percent the light source, and that and that's why I think it's so successful. Because again, I I feel like different people place different emphases or different levels of importance on on a frame. People might say, well, you only need an LED screen the size of the background right because that's all the camera's seeing i would argue particularly with a chrome helmet uh, but even without a chrome helmet just in, in 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 with humans or with people that don't reflect the same way i believe as humans we know when something doesn't quite feel right this is a this is an evolutionary thing you know like you would have to be a dp to go hey the key lights on the left but they're 
the lights on the right and like we don't most people don't sit there and assess those things but they feel certain things and if you you're right if you're sitting in front of a curtain there should be a slight haloing around your head and that might wrap around it might reflect off the desk that you're sitting at you know look at again i mean look at the the, the pilot uh, the Werner herzog um warehouse there's reflections off his desk now we didn't design those reflections off his desk they occurred naturally but when you look at the frame you go yep okay listen again none of this technology is perfect we're still this is like beta mode this is version 1.0 um so we were all i wouldn't say making it up as we're going because there's a big history of how how we developed uh, not developed but how we got to this point but but we got to this point we're standing there with all the technology we ordered and went wow yeah okay the light on the desk and the back of the chair look amazing and so that helps our believability um, as an audience, because suddenly then we're not we're not questioning it, and I, I think that's a huge hurdle that we've jumped because it people audiences, you know, there's a suspension of disbelief when they go to see a movie, like they know that a movie is false. Everybody knows a movie's false. Everyone knows that James Bond does what he does, and it's like a it's a it's a fallacy, you know, but we go and buy it because that's we're film lovers and that's what we do. If, as filmmakers, we give the audience too many reasons to lose that sus- um, suspension of disbelief, I feel like suddenly we're working our way down a hole. And if you as a cinematographer aren't working with a layer and someone else is adding that layer on, it's natural that that's going to feel like a different layer to a certain degree, no matter how skilled the technology is and you know i you know I, i'm going to use as an example here you know you know blade runner uh 2049 was was a beautiful film and it it had great visual effects and that went beyond i think roger deakins considerable talents it also had to do with the fact that roger deakins was involved with those other layers beforehand yeah. in other hand like those composite layers he was a voice in that room and both in their both early and late and there therefore yeah. it's it, therefore it is he is unif he's able to unify what what's going on here and i bring that up because um what's interesting to me in reading about you working on mandalorian is there's an element here with just the process of these leds that not only are you part of this process, this pro, these um, backdrops have to be created before, before you shoot, and you're able to be part of that discussion. And I have to assume part of that is is a, a lighting design discussion uh, of what kind of day yep. this is. You know, where is the sun? You know, what what's yep. the feel of this? And 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 so there's just an element I think, and I want I was hoping you could talk about it of a kind of like a reverse engineering of how these these effects these backdrops are made that involve you, and and, and, and not only do they appear on set and you are able to see them, but you were also part of the creation of them, right? Hundred percent, yeah. And that and that's the power and that's the strength. It's the it's the ability for uh, the the process to be as genuine as possible you know back before all this occurred you know you'd have a script 
you'd meet with the director and you'd say what sort of location are we looking for you'd get a location manager to go out and say okay we're trying to find a place where this character can hide a 50 foot wide ship it's got to be a, a canyon it's got to be private enough that it's not in the middle of nowhere but it's also got to be wide enough that it kind of makes it believable that he could land so they would go out and find something in utah or wherever you know, we have the same discussions. So as opposed to us just putting a ship on a screen, us on a stage, putting up a green screen and giving it illumination so you can see it, exactly what you just said. We talk about the time of day. How does it feel? Is it morning? Is it is it late morning? Is it like in the glaring sun? Is it supposed to be garish? Is it supposed to be bright? Is it supposed to be teetering on nightfall? And what's the emotional connection we have to that lighting at that point in time so it's about the cinematographer being able to get as many uh many fingers in the pie as possible uh with the director and if some of those pieces of the puzzle are missed i feel like it's it has a negative impact but it also too one of the things the cinematographers um one of the things we have is we have so many shots to create every day we don't get too tied up on individual frames you know we we have to create 70 80 frames a day now not to say we don't strive for perfection we do but we we also have to look at it in reality of like you can't spend seven hours on the wide shot when you've got to get 68 69 of the shots for the rest of the day so we sort of moderate ourselves so that each image is a is a moderate uh, frame, good, but still moderate. If you've got a blue screen, you might have somebody working on that blue screen that's working on it for four weeks. That's what they're doing. So it's it's in human nature to you give me one shot to do for four weeks, mm-hmm. and I will elaborate and light the hell out of that shot. Yeah. And you might get to the end of four <laughs> weeks and go, is that three weeks and seven hours? Three, you know, better than the the one hour you would have spent. So it. it it's about kind of the process and about restoring uh, the, the the control back into the cinematographer's hands. Mm-hmm. One concern that people have with that, though, is it kind of locks you in a little bit to the background, which I don't think is a concern. I think that's – I know sometimes things need to change for for, uh, for for story reasons, but I kind of feel like, you know, lock it, lock it in, lock the lighting, lock everything in. Because let me just let's just clarify here. Because it to to create that environment, it, it, those computers have to rent. It's not something like it's you know like your LED lights on a set. You can dim those with an iPad or something like this. But this environment has to be rendered and created. You can't make adjustments yes. on the fly. Is that is is that part of what we're getting at? Again, you know, we were working on season one with version one point zero mm-hmm. and. You, you could do certain changes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could. Okay, for a perfect example, if 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 you're you've got a shot of me and there's a there's a window just off screen that's creating too much light on my face, I can I can put a, a virtual uh, solid in front of that window. Now, what that will do is it'll affect the lighting on me on stage, but it will not affect the background on the, in the volume in the volume. So. The, the lighting on the 3D is baked in, but you can control what the lighting does on the stage. 
like if you feel like i said one mm. side's too bright or you can knock it down or knit it or you can add another light source you know i did that a bit with Werner in, in the pilot um you, you, you where i could create a bit more of a highlight on his face mm-hmm. instead of bringing in a light I or put a light outside the window. I just increased the brightness of the window that was already there. Got it. Yeah, which which then gave me a believable, it gave me a believable source of the light, but just increased the intensity of it, which is something I would do on set anyway. In talking about preparing, because I, help me with this part, because I think one of the things that's a, a breakthrough here is is the in, in why you were able to do Mandalorian is is this idea that you know the camera relationship to the backdrop can change you can move you can you know so so like yes. you know like so if if it's really a mountain backdrop if i walk that way if i walk you know my perspective on that mountain is going to change and now there's a way so that if you pan if you track if you move through space they can adjust that that backdrop can adjust as if you're moving through space and that's kind of something that before mandalorian hadn't been able to be that that code hadn't been cracked to some degree right Correct. There are there are companies that are, are are working on similar things, and you know everybody was working around the peripheral of camera tracking or tracking or um, real time three D because you know people have the, mm-hmm. the the 3D goggles and you know it was all working around the peripheral but didn't actually come together as a group in order for us as filmmakers to be able to to do that. I must say we because we did a test in in June 2018, just as a proof of concept test mm-hmm. because we didn't want to go out and build this massive volume and sink all the resources into entire season without knowing at least it could work. And I remember the first time that I put camera tracking on and I did some handheld work. And, you know, I love handheld work, mm-hmm. just love it. And I was through the lens. I was I was in the location, mm-hmm. even though I knew I was standing inside a, a LED volume. It when it fooled me, I was like, "Sold. <laughs> we're, we're off to the races." Because now I'm fooled, and I'm the I'm the dude whose responsibility is to make it look real. Yeah. So my brain was. I mean, I tell a story. Um, you know, we we did a test. I don't know. In season one, the first shot of the Mandalorian is is Mandalorian walking towards the ice hut down a, a long plankway and that was one of the first setups we tested and i had a shot i was walking behind mandalorian mando and i was sort of hand holding walking behind him and it was one of the shots we did crane shots we did everything and on my right eye was through the viewfinder and i'm watching mando in this space and i'm like wow this is pretty <laughs> good he's walking just just normally i opened my left eye just as i knew we were getting towards the end of the the, the run mm-hmm. towards the screen my left eye saw an led screen that i was about to hit and my right eye saw um the the, the, the beautiful 3d all rendered and i almost fainted <laughs> i've never fainted in my entire <laughs> life but obviously my my two eyes were telling me two different stories yeah, yeah. and my brain said my brain said um i think you should pass out now. <laughs> i mean that was because i wasn't used to the technology and i was like wow that that's how much my brain believed where i was and, and so it can there's sensors um that are sensing the camera that are then talking to the computer that's controlling the led it, it can do those computations in real time or do you need to be able to plan a little bit like you need to be able to tell it like we're moving 
this way this far or is it, it it's it's purely doing it in real time sensing where the camera is yeah it's you'd probably need to speak to someone more tech based mm-hmm. than me to, to to find out exactly what the mm-hmm. it's not it's not fully real time there's like a two or three frame lag mm-hmm. um or four frame lag but no you do not have to have any um any discussions with anybody i tell you what the only thing that you do need to discuss in the in in, in advance is to make sure that the witness cameras can see you so if you're if you're going through a tunnel on the set you have to make sure that there are witness cameras that can see where you are mm-hmm. so for example in the Ugnaught ranch and in inside the Ugnaught's tent um you know that was sitting inside the volume and the all the cameras that could have ordinarily seen us couldn't have seen us so those cameras needed to be moved inside it's got to be able to read you and and, and play with it yeah um, totally. you know John Favreau had talked about this, about about seeing this in kind of um, Western terms. And, you know, the character himself is very methodical. He's very kind of, you know, he's 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 got a certain pace and cadence to him. Um, And that's a very steady, you know, kind of. And so there's an element there where I have to imagine that also maybe doesn't put the stress on the environment moving Am I right about in that sense? Yeah, because like I mean, like a, right. like a J.J. Abrams Star Wars, which are great. It's just like that's like you know those things are zigging and zagging, whereas this has got a little bit more of a, a steady beat to it. Exactly. You know, one of the things that was really great about working on this was that 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 you know often filmmaking is trying to fit a round peg in a square hole. Mm-hmm. You know, we. We often try and fit sets under stages that are too small, and we try and shoot outside. And when it's sunny, when it's actually cloudy, like mm-hmm. filmmaking is often about round pegs, square holes. This, to John's credit, he very much embraced the limitations of the technology, but we also made sure that we we expanded on what this technology can give us. You know, I. Uh, I, I remember every time because I, I I took all the directors through the the, the technology because at that point, um, you know that was early on in the piece before before Baz had spent too much time on it, but I understood the technology probably from a visual perspective more than anybody, and um, but I, I so when I was taking all the directors through, I was giving them limitations, and every single director kind of went white. They just instantly went white, going oh. Oh gee, yeah, it's a seventy-five foot wide round cylinder with a twenty foot higher ceiling. Mm. Instantly, that to them screams limitations. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, so yeah, if you want to do a walk, if you want to do a reverse, we spin the set, spin the three D set. Okay, and what about the props? Well, we make sure the props are easily to move. Bang, mm-hmm. done, moved. And they go, okay. So eventually, what happened was, and I saw it happen. It was almost the same with everybody. They went white for the first 22 minutes and they kept asking questions and we kept spitballing ideas of shots. And then after about 22, 25 minutes, they all went, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so that scene at sunset that normally has to take place over five sunsets or I can do in half a day. And I, it's like, and I'm like yep. And that's, that interior that I I don't have to go to a build a location. I can just put that up on the walls. It's like, yep. So instantly it went from being 
a series of limitations to a series of advantages. And going back to the question about John, like we made sure that that the camera often was methodical and meticulous. You know, there are some elements of reportage camera work in the in the film. You know, there is some handheld. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that we 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 blended um, modern filmmaking with sort of older westerns, just in order. Just because I love that mix, I think mm-hmm. that mix is really exciting. Where you've got beautiful, methodical filmmaking, you know, Sergio Leone, and then you've got sort of a bit of Paul Greengrass, a bit of you know, a bit of reportage. I think when used well, I think that can be a very exciting type of filmmaking. And we just made sure that the um, the technology was able to handle it because the last thing you want is to pan a camera and for the to be a lag in the uh, in the image. So that would be bad. The, the the show has it has a lot of different looks but but one thing if you were to watch the whole series it has a um kind of a, a gray skies mood to it um and it has it has a wonderful sense of 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 a a certain soft kind of gray light i'm curious it works really well for the show how much of that is also maybe one of those kind of like that methodical pacing is also a creative decision matched with a um putting one of those limits on it because you don't want to have like a hard directional light at least maybe in version 1.0 with this led Mm -hmm. this led lighting is giving off a nice light and lighting it maybe it's easier if it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a it's a soft um even light rather than a than a contrasty very directional light well, it gets down to the limitations of the technology, yes. Um, LED panels will never match the brightness of the sun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the sun, okay, when you go outside and, and stand in the middle of a, the desert in the middle of the day, you're being hit by a very, very powerful source. Now, we can create that powerful source with an HMI close enough to a subject. What's harder to create is the ambient bounce that occurs from not the sun hitting you, but the sun hitting the the car that's parked three thirty feet away from you, or from the grounds, from the rocks, or from the so creating that ambience is incredibly hard. I mean, yes, you can create lots of lights to to hit a seventy five foot wide space, but then suddenly you've got bounce hitting the screen, you've got multi shadows, like it's a really it's a tough one to solve. And so the limitations of the volume are in that it works best with soft light. You know, there's a um, there's a set that that Baz lit beautifully in in episode four, chapter four, uh, an interior um, uh, bar, uh, Cara Dune's interior bar. And again, remember, every time we shot a new episode, we wanted to push the envelope a little bit further because it's. Episode one, we wanted to make sure we hit it out of the park. We wanted to make sure we succeeded because mm-hmm. that would be bad. You, you get to the end <laughs> of episode one and te- we fail. So it's like, mm-hmm. ah. So we wanted to make sure. we were, So we played it a little bit safer. And then as w- the season went on, we sort of pushed the limitations of the of the technology. Mm-hmm. And and by then, by the end of the end of the season, unfortunately, I was uh, I was off doing uh, 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 setting up um, starting on June. So so I was. With Baz, we were working together but, remotely. At- but let's just Baz is someone that's worked with you as a camera operator and as a second uh, second unit uh, cinematographer who shot yep. who who uh, what served as cinematographer. I think on like five of these, four of these, or something. Uh, uh, 
he, he shot a yep. he shot a large portion of the season. Uh, he shot a huge part, part of it, and season two he shot mm-hmm. uh, along with Matt Jensen. So, so Baz, listen, Baz's level of knowledge about LED technology was pretty much the same as mine. He did Rogue One with me. Rogue One was where we we built the the, the very wide uh, and very big um, LED screen. We worked with ILM at doing tests to try and figure out a way that that screen could be used as a virtual stage. That was the, the incarnation. That was the genesis of the ILM experience. And so Baz was there for all of that. And Baz has been doing his own cinematography. And, um, you know, it was a great opportunity to, to, to work hand in hand because the, the, the development of this, the visual development of this, was one of the most stressful things I've ever done because I've never done this before. As in, like, no one's ever done this before. And, you know, when you're, when you're a filmmaker, when you're standing on a set and the sun's not out and you're inside and you need to light a room, you usually have backups. Like, the backup is a light or the backup is a change of idea. If the LED screen doesn't turn on one day, you can imagine... Yeah. You can imagine what would happen. Right. I mean, everyone would be like, well, go home because <laughs> there's there's no solution to it. Um, so in developing what would work, you know, it's a very – a lot rode on this this volume, a lot of uh, – well, a lot rode on it. I mean, you know, the this is the launch of Disney+. Plus. This is the Man- this is Mandalorian. This, you know, if it wasn't good or d- didn't succeed, uh, it could have been very, very bad. So – Baz came on to help me prepare uh, the season. And, you know, I was often doing pre-lighting backings. You know, I was pre-lighting scenes. Um, and often Baz was on set working with the director and we'd kind of mix and match it. So, you know, we, we are credited for single seasons. Like I, I'm credited solely for the, for episode one. But I, I, I think Baz is as responsible for episode one as I am for his episode two or whatever. So we're, we're, we're both credited with episode seven. But again, that comes down to the the sort of archaic crediting system yeah, that occurs rules, with DPs. Yeah. And I say archaic, archaic, I mean, archaic for that season didn't didn't work. Um, there, rules so, that were meant, yeah. there, there were rules that were meant to protect filmmakers, but working under... Yeah. But, but, under circumstances that maybe don't apply to the modern way a, a TV show like this would be made or something like that. So Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it was one of the joys of my experience was being able to collaborate with another DP. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know Baz very well and I love Baz and he's, he's a very skilled DP. So being able to collaborate was one of the biggest joys that I had on the season because – you know, Baz would pick things up that I missed and I would pick things up that he missed and together with the amount of emf- uh, effort that was required to prepare an entire season um, of from an unknown point, um, it was a, yeah, it was very, very enjoyable. So, um, and I'll just say that I just want, yeah, I just it, want to say this too, is, is that working within the limitations you, we, we, we're, you know, the truth of the matter is all filmmakers working, all filmmaking is working within some form of limitations. And the one thing I would say is, is that the look that you guys created from this um, of these kind of I keep saying gray skies. I don't know if that's rubs you the wrong way or something, but there's there's a moodiness and there's a sense of of a, like a silvery glow to this that really fits the story. Um, yep. You know, it's not simply like you ha- were working with one hand tied behind your back. It also became a, a beautiful creative decision that kind of, kind of really fit the story you guys were telling. 
Oh, 100%. I mean, no, like I, I think that the, the reason why I'm so passionate about this is that it, it can give us as filmmakers opportunities that we ordinarily would have never have had. You know, to be able to shoot an entire scene at 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 just before the light goes b- below the horizon. You know, like in filmmaking, we might do two or three shots like that, or we might incorporate that into an entire long sequence, like Roger did on on No Country. Like he, he it went from nighttime to sun started to come up to dawn to you know when he's running away and the dogs chasing him like he's in the river. So. There are limitations that that implies, but but now some of those limitations with this technology are broken. So we can do an entire scene at that time of day, and that's really, really, really exciting. And and you're right, working within the limitations that that gives us some fantastic stuff, like the the softness. Like I love soft light. I love it contrasting too with the exterior. There's the, you know the occasional exterior day with the with the harsh sun. But I feel like it's a nice mix, and it's it's nice to hear that that's kind of your your take on the overall tone because that's a that's a great place to to be. I'm curious. We're talking about the efficiencies of this. How how easy is it to switch? How easy is it? And you know, you you set up a scene where you know he gets off the craft and has a scene, and then suddenly you got to cut, and you're you're going to someplace else. Both in terms of a change of of. I guess, for lack of a better word, set, but also in terms of yep. a lighting change, is how, what is how efficient? I imagine there's there are there can be some inefficiencies in that. No. Well, there is because trying to get a a, a fifty foot long craft out of a LED volume without destroying the LEDs <laughs> doesn't take doesn't take five minutes. It takes it takes a considerable amount yeah. of time. So that example that you use is like one of my nightmare scenarios. <laughs> Where the first AD wants to shoot him walking off the ship yeah. in the morning and then the warehouse scene in the afternoon, you're like, uh, okay, art department, over to you. <laughs> like how long does it take? But but the actual technical, let's say let's 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 look at something that's a little bit more simple. Mm-hmm. Like um, uh, like uh, a warehouse with uh, with those tables and a and a, and a and a scene in the desert. So, how long it, does it take to get the desk out and to bring sand in? Uh, it's it's as long as that takes. Mm-hmm. So you might do it over a lunch break. You might do it. You might move into another set next door for four hours. But but practically if all the backgrounds were just led i think the changes in loads take five minutes so and also you've done there's an element of pre-lighting that's built in to the new environment that you've done some to some degree your work has been done then right no exactly right like you've talked to the director about angles you've spoke you've 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 got the mood signed off so you know what time of day it is you know how the light feels you know hopefully you've done a pre-light technical so hopefully you've had it up on the thing before you've shown everyone how it feels so yes if you're using the volume for most of your lighting which i feel is where it works best um the the changeovers take minutes but but you know and and this is what excites me about this technology is because i have a certain opinion and i just stated it i think lighting on the volume looks better than bringing in your own lights i i'm looking forward to seeing other dps use it and to completely throw that idea out, to bring their own lights in, to to make it feel abstract and odd, because it can be really strange. If you're overlighting the foreground and underlighting the background, or you can do some amazing stuff. So, I, I you know, throughout through the last couple of years since we uh, 
you know, since we started on this, I've got so many things I want to try on a volume. Mm. Um, but also, also, Chris, like one of the things that I also don't want to get carried away with the the tail wag and the dog in my career and in what I shoot. You know, like I don't want to shoot something just because it's on a volume. Yeah. You know, I, I want to shoot something great. And if it happens to be better shooting on a volume for a scene or for a, a setup, well, then so be it. I know there's some heavy technical aspects to this, and I, I read a little bit. There's a there's for people that want a little bit more detail. There is a, there's a some technical breakdowns in the American Cinematographer article on this um, in terms of color calibration and getting the camera in line. But I'm curious about just shooting the backdrop in general. Um, I noticed that you saw, use the RELF, which is a higher resolution camera. So clearly it can, I, I, maybe that decision, but I, I have to imagine that part of maybe what's built into that decision is also an element of um, when you do shoot larger format, um, and I have to be careful here so Steve Yeldon doesn't get mad at me here, but it's not the format that's making it different. It's the, it's the gate, you know, it's like, you know, when you have a larger format, your what you know a 35 millimeter lens is going to give you a wider um uh angle of view than you would on a 35 millimeter and that you're also going to have less depth of field I, i'm wondering if that less depth of field is plays into this to a certain degree if if there's limitations in terms of what's going to look good in terms of how you shoot the backdrop well the other the other limitation here's another visual limitation if you've got a character five feet in front of your camera and behind him there's a, well, let's, let's say a, 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 a land speeder or a motorbike, whatever, whichever world you're in, then that's at 20 feet. That's for real. That's 20 feet and that's sitting just in front of your LED screen. Behind that is a mountain range at 1,000 feet and behind that's another mountain range at 4,000 feet. So your camera, your physical camera, is going to see the motorcycle out of focus and the mountain range approximately the same because they're approximately on the same plane mm-hmm. of, of, of in the real world. In the virtual world, the, the, the mountain range is a 1,000 feet behind, so it should be slightly more out of focus. When we tested 35mm sensors, and we didn't test film, we never would have tested film on this because the film wouldn't have worked because mm-hmm. of the real-time, all that stuff, but... When we tested 35mm, what we found is exactly what you just said. The focus doesn't fall off fast enough, and it gives the game away faster. So you can sense the the, the, the focus disparity between the motorcycle at 25 feet, which is just in front of the screen, to the mountain range. Now, if that was to occur and it was egregious, you'd move the motorcycle or you'd ask your, ask your post friends to... To, to blur this blur it later or so there are there are some solutions but nothing that is the perfect solution so that is a slight uh well, th- that is a deficiency of the system and that's just a that's just a that's just a physics thing mm-hmm. you know like you've got a screen at 30 feet and the mountain range should be at a thousand feet like that's just obviously all these deficiencies that we're talking about there are very smart people working on right now. I'm sure. I mean, it's a mount, it's so, a mountain range. You know, it's 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 amazing that you actually there, that you, one has a sense of scope at all, at all with it being an LED screen and not being like you know yeah. in the mountains with a camera. You know, it's 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 kind of remarkable that there is even a, a feeling of depth in general or a grandness of of, of these landscapes. You know, and like the this 
film, this series does, is in conversation with some of these kind of exotic Star Wars landscapes, you know, and it doesn't, yep. it, it holds up, you know, and that, that in and of itself is impressive um, that it can do it. We had, we had, we had, we had great support mm-hmm. from, from ILM too, you know, I, I wasn't as involved in the post on this as, um, as Baz, because I was away mm-hmm. uh, doing something else, but I do know that ILM helped uh, repair some of those things. Like, for example, if you see the edge of the real world and the edge of the screen, that's called we're calling that the seam mm-hmm. between the set and the and the world. Now, if you go a little bit longer, drop down a bit, you might be able to avoid that. But often we saw that edge, that seam. Um, the guys on the day could get the colors looking really good on camera, mm-hmm. but there's always a little bit of work to be done. So. You know, I think that there's always a little bit of work to be done to to improve it, but mm-hmm. effectively, fundamentally, the basics, the bones of the shot exist, mm-hmm. which means all the visual effects are quicker, easier, and 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 better. We, we we've talked about this. This is this is also version one point. Oh, and so it, it, there was a lot riding on 1.0. It is addressed, you know, it's the it's going to be the Star yeah. Wars Disney Plus series, which is not exactly you know. You know, the first Pixar movie was that bouncing lamp, you know, wasn't exactly like, you know, uh, going to be a flagship. But, you know, and, and so it does. And I, you've shot Rogue One. It's it's hard to imagine there being a Star Wars series um, that has that kind of scope unless you have this kind of technology. And so it does it does open up some doors here and it'll be exciting, like you said, to see where people take it. I'm curious, though, Greg, you know, there's so there's that element. And even before, you know, in in a few months ago, this technology was exciting and something that everybody was talking about. And, you know, what's this mean for the future of of film making like a Star Wars movie? But I'm curious, though, you know, it's hard to not think about it also in context of these conversations of back to production in a coronavirus world. And, I mean, neither you or I are experts on what the hell means to be working in this and and well you might be coming more of an expert <laughs> as you as you in the middle of a movie but you know it's like it, there is this element one thing that everybody knows is you can't be traipsing around the world making these movies any at least in the immediate future and it seems yeah. like uh, it seems like possibly this technology as we start talking about solutions at least for the next year it, it, it could be in addition to being an interesting tool it could be a very interesting tool in the next year in terms of some of the the incredible limitations that productions are going to face yeah well the th- the, the, the yes that yeah, that's 100 percent right and there's been a lot of discussion about that um and i agree the major problem comes in the fact that there aren't many of these volumes in existence right now there's not much there's not many people who are skilled in being able to use this technology and i say i'm not just talking about dps because if dp can learn but like I said, it was a massive learning curve for me and very stressful and, and fantastically enjoyable. Um, but there's not many DPs that have actually shot on this. So y- y- all a DP can do is speak to other DPs and the DPs that have worked on it or have. Uh, but but I do believe that there is a, a push for everyone to not be traveling, mm-hmm. which, as you know, like means that suddenly you're in LA and all your actors are in LA, like, where do you shoot? Well, LA, it's great for LA. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, it, it is a, it is a tricky debate. It is a tricky debate because I, I think that in some ways it's going to be 
um, useful for the next year, but I fear that there's not enough set up to to be to fully capitalize on it. Oh. And I don't like I said the skill level. And even beyond that, you, I mean, so much of what, and one of the things that was exciting here was so much of the work that you were able to do in shaping this came beforehand, right? So how much work you yep. were putting in, I mean, how long were you on this and, and figuring some of these things out and working with them in terms of what these backdrops are before, before camera started to roll? I mean, it was months, right? It, completely. And that's where, you know, my, my, um, my effort on the show was a bit like a the iceberg. Most of it was before production started. Um, you know, and, should be noted you got a pro- Baz- you uh, you have a producer credit on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, effectively, that as a result of developing the processes involved mm-hmm. and and developing this. You know, t- again, technically, I have no idea what p- plugs into where mm-hmm. and what programs being used. And actually, I deliberately stayed very very ignorant of that because it was just out of my purview. <laughs> right, right. Um, I wanted to make sure that I responded directly to what aesthetically was going on. You know, the, the, to, to me, again, the, the important part of this is that the tail doesn't wag the dog and that we're using it for the right reasons and that directors who I respect and want to work with want to use it for the right reasons, not just because it's a short drive for them to get to work every day, but it actually is better and it's a better solve. So a lot of my work was done in, in, in pre-production and doing the testing early on, deciding on uh, obviously camera systems, LED packages, like, you know, the, 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 the panels were incredibly important to choose and choose correctly because we had a no room for error, mm. you know, chrome helmet. Um, the size, you know, the what size do you do? Do you do 72 foot wide? Do you do 92 foot wide? Like where's the cost benefits analysis when it comes to doing something a little too small and then having everybody trip over themselves or something that's too big, too expensive and not necessary. So it was it was all of those things. And it was a very administrative uh, time to, to make those choices. Um, but what was fun, what I loved, was working in 3D. Like I learned how to work in 3D and light a scene. And it, it's so, you know, there's, a, there's such a power to being able to put the sun wherever the hell you want like it doesn't have to just be east or west like you could put it at any degree height you could over a mountain range just licking over a peak of a mountain range creating a shadow on the on the background that's a particular shape of the of the mountain range like there's so much power it it, it's very invigorating having that much power over light yeah, I heard Caleb say certain things similar t- in, in terms of the Lion King experience you know that like kind of that it's very odd to be able to just do that and adjust the sun like it's a like it's a two K or something. Because <laughs> like, this thing is, you know, there's a there's this. Everyone kind of jokes about DPs having some god complex, yeah. you know. And the thing is that in three D, <laughs> you can play you can play god. You can put the sun wherever. You can change yeah. the height of the mountain range. You can lower the mountain range. Mm-hmm. You can you can make a crack through the mountain range so that there's just a slither. Like it's just power. And it, I don't say power in a, like a, in a macho sort of way. I mean, power in an aesthetic way. And visually, we've got the ability to, to kind of make those choices, uh, which we never had that before. Well, I want to move away. Not We don't necessarily have to move away from Mandalorian, but I, I want to talk in general about, um, before I let you go, 
uh, some of the, the scale of some of these things and the in the kind of iconic images of you've done two Star Wars projects now, um, Dune, Batman, uh, these and, and, and you know it's interesting to me because um, for a couple different reasons. One, it's you're someone that comes from you know for lack of a better word world uh, our world our indie wire world. We know you know we fell in love with you before these big movies and but even beyond that. I've always sensed, um, and I think you've talked about this in, you, in people, I think, listening to this interview, you always have a ground. There's, I feel like you always want to orientate something towards a grounded, even Rogue One. You want that to feel grounded and in, in, in lighting in the ground. And even just the way you were talking about working in that volume. It's interesting to me the transition of what that has meant to moving to these big projects. You know, I, I talked to... Um, Incredible cinematographer. Um, I'm probably going to pronounce her mispronounce her name. Caitlin uh, Asmerendi, uh, who did the wonderful Swat, uh, who who you brought on to do uh, second unit on Dune. And one thing that she was saying was uh, she wanted to go work with you to see because she she felt a kinship with you in terms of the films, the types of in your uh, minimalist approach, and wanting to see how you handled all the big toys with Dune, and quickly seeing that you worked much the same way. But I, that seems to be you don't necessarily think of these projects in a different way in terms of an approach and, and in terms of, a, in terms of, because it is, one would necessarily make a think of separating your earlier work from this work because of the size and the scale and, you know, Batman, Dune, Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, Ultimately, they're all about characters and and how the, the camera reacts to the characters. And that character, you know, for all intents and purposes, Bruce Wayne might be some, you know, some person that no one's ever heard of, and he's playing a a dude in a in it with a cape that no one's ever heard of. Like to to me, it's never occurred to me that that films have a size or, or an importance. Now I, I realize that 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 occurs when I. When I first got Star Wars, I realized how uh, that it was very important. I mean, I knew that it was very important. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> like I know cause my 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 visual language is based on you know watching A New Hope about a thousand times when I was a kid. So trust me, I it wasn't lost on me. But the point is, is that I don't want to see something that's not grounded. I can't stand watching anything that's not grounded. In fact, I can't watch it. I I turn off. I feel ill. My uh, it doesn't if i don't relate to the characters or it's just an action piece for the sake of an action piece or like i i i'd much prefer to watch the new prices right mm. or something you know because at least then there are real people on that show mm. um and so if i'm contributing to a film where i can i need to have now by the way I, I sound like I'm – one thing I always have said in my in my past is I never want to be locked in my ways. You know, I don't want to be one of these these DPs or artists that go, like, I just do this. So by me saying this, I have to do something grounded in reality. If somebody offered me something that wasn't grounded in reality, I would love to embrace that. Mm-hmm. I'd have to find a way around it. I'd have to find a way to, to, to make it so that I could uh, – uh, um, relate to it but i think that would be quite exciting that's why like mm-hmm. things like musicals you know like i love the idea of doing a musical like it's bonkers somebody just has a conversation like this and then starts to sing mm-hmm. like how ridiculous <laughs> is that but it's like it's a it's a it's a it's a fantastic fantastical um opportunity you know mm. so where where i can do these films now 
one of the things too, I, and and Kate, Arismendi and I talked a lot about this on June because we had some incredibly big sets on that and incredibly important things. And, you know, that's something I'd love to talk about with you at some later stage because, you know, the world was our oyster there. We had opportunities to do as many things as technically as we wanted to. But I often find that if we start changing our approach or start doing things that doesn't that that we wouldn't have done on a low budget movie or wouldn't have done on a mid budget movie, well, it starts to feel like you're not being honest with your with your vision. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we were, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that on both the Star Wars films, both the Star Wars projects that I worked on that there was that degree of believability, you know, and listen, no one's flying into space like that and no one's doing light speed and all that sort of stuff. So it's totally hyper real. But at least if there's this groundness with the characters, you know, and even a character with a chrome head, like, you know, mm. he's still a great character. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Yeah. The, the other part of that, and I'll, you've been very generous with your time, so I don't, I don't want to keep you any longer, but. Um, it's also, and you, you kind of touched upon this with Star Wars, but how it's hard to also not think about you're doing your own thing. You and Matt are going to do your own thing on Batman. You know, you and Denny, I'm sure you, you're doing your own thing on Dune. Certainly the two Star Wars projects would speak to that as well. But there, there has, how, do, how do you take into account in thinking about the fact that what you are creating is in conversation with these iconic images that came before? You know, it's like you can't erase Batman from your head. You can't erase someone nope. our age cannot erase Star Wars from our head. You know, it's like and nope. it, it becomes this thing where it's like that sense of awareness. You're going to do your own thing, but that also you're in conversation with a world that that predates you and that's bigger than you and bigger than what you're the, the particular film that you're making at that time. Well, that's actually empowering. I find that empowering. Like one of the things that was exciting about Rogue One and Batman, although I can't really discuss it per se, but it's pure iconography. Like it's pure iconography. Like these things, like I did a film called Mary Magdalene, Mm -hmm. you know, Mary Magdalene was about Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about iconography. Mm -hmm. Like there were images in that that I'm like, these, these are images that in our, in a lot of our cultures have been around for, centuries mm-hmm. so you know obviously star wars hasn't been around for centuries but but there are certain star warsian star warsian um things that occur in, in star wars you know it's the size of you know it's the it's the it's the it's the, the luke approaching the the millennium falcon and saying what a hunk of junk it is even though the audience goes oh that's cool it's not a hunk of junk but he thinks it's hunk of junk and it's massive and then seeing that massive millennium falcon pale by comparison to the size of the Death Star. And so, like, it's about scale. There's a certain language that, that Star Wars has particularly, and it's I think it's iconic. And so to be able to not only um, borrow from that, but actually be encouraged to borrow from that. It's like sometimes you kind of, as a DP, you go, oh, man, that looks a little bit like the Godfather. Oh, geez, should we really do that? Like, that's a bit – That's a, that, that's a little bit kind of mm, self-aware and, oh, geez. But this is like – no, it should look like Star Wars, and there's Star Warsian aspects. But provided you're not trying to replicate, and one thing with, with Gareth and I made sure of is we made Rogue One look how we remembered it, as opposed to what it actually, what a New Hope actually looked like. So we watched the the film, we saw it, we went, okay, it's not quite how we remembered it when we were eight watching it on a 
dirty old VHS tape. Um, you know, you watch a new hope, mm-hmm. Darth Vader, he's pretty banged yeah, up. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. he's not, so it's not the best costume in the world. Um, but we didn't then make a crappy Darth Vader costume. You know, we made a Vader costume how we remembered it. Mm-hmm. So the same with cinematography. Now, yes, there's no handheld in A New Hope. Uh, there might be maybe one or two shots actually with the Tuscan Raiders, but like there's not many handheld shots. But I kind of remember it as being energetic and, you know, that the fight in the bar with the arm kind of cut off. Like I remember it as being crazy, you know, and... It's not as crazy actually as you as we remember it, but it's like well that's we wanted to make the film we remembered, mm-hmm. and so with Batman again I can't really discuss too much, but you've got an icon, you've got multiple characters who are icons, so that is something that we you play with. I mean Dune again, I mean it's, it's a fantastic opportunity. I'm not looking for you to break news at all here. Um, are you starting, like everybody else, starting to wrap your head around what going back to production means, or are you are you not really at that phase yet? Um, and we don't even have to talk about. I mean, we don't even have to talk about what you're going back to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's a, it's, it's. Yes, I've, I've wrapped my head around. I think, uh, you know, I go shopping once a week, and I go to Trader Joe's, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, there's limited people in the supermarket and uh, you wear a face mask and you stand, you know, six to ten feet away from your friend when you see him in the line and go, hey, how's it going? No hugs, no kisses, no fist bumps. You, Everybody knows that, you know, if you take something off someone, it's it's infected and you got to clean it. And, like, it, uh, uh, to me, it's very basic, very basic. Uh, it's like we all stand on set with, with face masks and we don't get in each other's in each other's way like we limit the amount of people on set um you know hopefully there's 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 free testing or you know free testing there's an abundance of testing get to the point so get to the point where testing is something that's regular and you could just so be be proactive people who can't exactly so people who can't practice social distancing be it actors who have to have love scene with somebody else or a close proximity fight or something uh can do so knowing that the other actor is uh not you know, again, this we're talking broadly here, mm-hmm. of course. I'm talking generally as opposed to a specific movie because everybody that's about to go into another film or to do films are going to have to figure this out. Um, and I believe that, you know, social distancing will still take place as much as possible. If somebody doesn't need to be on set watching, they won't be. Yeah. Yeah, my wife's a UPM and she mentions the fact that um, she often gets a Q-take, you know, the app on the phone. Yes. And one thing that she brought up is like, you know, not everybody needs to be on set. And, you know, the way that I get the from the, um, you know, the playback guy, I get the password so that I don't have to be there. There's going to be more people like that, that, you know, makeup stays in trailer. People stay where they need to be and they can watch what's on set without being on set. Million percent. And I and I actually, to be honest with you, I think that's going to be a great thing because that's the you know, you talk about small films versus big films. Mm-hmm. One of the benefits of small films is small amount of people. And there's something really intimate about making a movie mm. with the sh- smallest amount of crowd uh, supporting you as possible. And there is a thing that goes on with big filmmaking that unfortunately requires more and more and more and more. And I, I think in some ways, again, I guess, you know, I'm trying to look at the positive side mm. and I'm just generally a positive person. So if we can take something positive from this, it'll be... Like with the volume, the, the LED volume, 
about trying to minimize the travel, minimize the people, minimize the equipment, minimize the 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 the, the, the process, and allow the the, the 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 camera and the actor and the director to have a, a symbiosis. Mm. And if you know if it allows that, then I'm all for it, and I'm happy to wear you know masks and gloves and you know. Mm-hmm get swabbed every day or whatever it takes well uh thank you the one the one good thing is is that you you are available to talk uh about talk shop with uh <laughs> you've been a very busy man so we get to actually chat with you about your films but uh hopefully it's fantastic uh, hopefully so i appreciate you uh making the time congratulations on this series and uh really look forward to talking i guess the next one would be dune when uh when we get to see that one I cannot wait to start talking about that. <laughs> cannot wait. It, one of the most joyous experiences of my life um, with some of the most beautiful people that I've ever worked with, you know. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's fantastic. I love it. I, I love the – I'm very fortunate. Very fortunate. Right. Well, thanks again, Greg. I really appreciate it. All right, Chris. Thank you, mate. And today's podcast was brought to you by Apple TV Plus and their original series, The Morning Show, which is for your consideration in all eligible Emmy categories, including Best Drama Series.